from Local 12 Sports, it's the Skinny Podcast. Now, here's Richard Skinner. Welcome into the Skinny Podcast. It's the weekly potpourri edition. I'm Richard Skinner, Local12.com, digital sports columnist and editor with Rick Brewing. As always, it's presented by Blake, the attorney Mason. We'll talk about sports topics of local interest. We'll get a little gambling segment in there. My favorite part of the podcast at the very end, where you can ask me a question on any topic, hit the hashtag, ask skinny anything on the X verse. Rick compiles them. You ask them, I answer them. Um, I know we got a lot of mileage out of my Beth Moen's in- imitation from, from, from last week. I, I promise I, I won't bring that out again for a while. That's, uh, the comments are still coming in about that. We've had it <laughs> twice now, and uh, I have not heard the end of it. So shout out to Beth Moen's, our good friend, friend of the podcast. Hope she's uh, still checking in this week. But we are going to move on. We're going to talk some Bengals to start off this show after last week's 34-11 loss to the Steelers on Saturday, Skinny. The Bengals were never really in this one. They trailed 24-0 at halftime. Jake Browning threw three interceptions in the loss. And the Bengals are now at 8-7 and on the outside looking in regarding the AFC playoff picture. So, Skinny, we'll start there. What are the Bengals' chances to make the playoffs at this point? Uh, they definitively have to win the next two, the final two, if you will. Um, and, and I don't... I think that's going to be enough. If, if you really start to look at everybody else, they're going to kind of cannibalize each other. You know, Pittsburgh's got to go to Seattle this week. Um, that's if you get if you're being fair, that's probably a loss that gives them eight losses. Um, you know, the, the AFC South is going to cannibalize itself between Jacksonville, the Colts and the Texans. Um, and at least two of them are going to get the eight losses. You know, if not, one of those is going to get the seven. You hold the tiebreaker over. I mean, you need Houston to lose one more. You don't have to worry about the tiebreaker with them any longer. Um, you own the tiebreaker with the Colts. You own the tiebreaker with Jacksonville. You own the tiebreaker if it comes to with the Bills, who still have to play Miami. So, I, I listen, you need a little bit of help. But this past weekend with Denver losing and some of the other things that took place, you could have really helped yourself uh, with a win in Pittsburgh. I think it would have given you wiggle room in these last two games, Rick, where you don't have to win them both. You wouldn't have had to win them both. And chances are you probably aren't going to win them both. So that, that Pittsburgh loss was devastating in a lot of ways, and especially the, the the flaws that have been there most of the season got really exposed, especially on the defensive side of the football. Yeah, it's hard to believe when you look at it now that with a win in that Pittsburgh game, they would have been in a great spot, and yes. you would have felt like they were pretty much in the playoffs at this point. Now the way it sets up, I think a lot of fans threw their hands up in the air midway through that game and said, oh, there goes the season. It's all over. Thanks for getting our hopes up. But in reality, it's not quite over just yet. There's no. still a chance that this team gets into the playoffs, and I get it. It's not as uh, fun. It's not as uh, exciting as it was maybe last week before the Steelers game when we were talking about what if Jake Browning really is this all-world quarterback. A- and maybe that's where we start, Skinny. How much of Sunday or Saturday rather was an opponent catching up to Jake Browning? How much of it was the coaching matchup? I heard a lot about, you know, Zach Taylor going up against Mike Tomlin and how much of it was the Bengals having too many key players out with injuries and it just finally caught up to them. Yeah, I mean, they've, they've dealt with the injury thing. I mean, you lose Jamar Chase, it's a big loss, but let's not forget they lost him for four games last year, and they went 3-1 and one in, in that span. So they've, they've overcome those kind of a thing. Um, I, I, I don't think it's fair to say teams have caught up to Jake Browning in, in this one fell swoop. I mean, he still completed 28-42 of 42 for over 300 yards. The interceptions were – I mean, the 
they're all individually different. You see the number three, and it is horrifying for a quarterback to throw three, although I will note Brock Purdy threw four on Monday night, and, and he was in the MVP conversation, so it does happen. You know, the three he threw, the one clearly he knew he just messed up trying to throw the ball away. He thought he got it out of the back of the end zone. He should have just thrown it out of bounds. That's interception one. Interception two was a bad decision. He threw that one into traffic trying to go to Tyler Boyd at a point in the game where you couldn't afford to try to jam one down the field like he did, and that was that one was inexcusable. The third one, Highsmith makes a great play. I'm watching him in my binoculars. He's literally on the line of scrimmage getting ready to rush. And at the snap, he dives all the way out to the middle of the field, about 15 yards down the field, and makes a diving pick. I'm just going to chalk that one up to a hell of a play on his part. So individually, out of the three, one is a dumb mistake, and he literally called it that, and it was. One was an inexcusable one, throwing it into traffic. And the last one was just, I'm chalking it up to that guy. So I, I don't think – I, I still have a lot of confidence in Jake Browning. And, and, and the other part, part to it is, for whatever reason, the Bengals, when they play the Steelers, and this is the column that I wrote, I think Paul Gaynor Jr. wrote it, um, A, they can't run the ball. They choose not to run the ball. They just back down physically in the trenches on both sides of the ball. And literally, that's been the story of them in the AFC North this year. It's why they're 0-5. And I even lumped a sixth loss in there. Tennessee plays that style of play, right, where they just want to line up and say, we're going to push you, or you're going to push us, and um, we're going to be the better team pushing you. And so – they're kind of 0-6 in those style of games, and, and it really has, has made the flaws jump up and go, okay, this is still a pretty good football team, except when they play a team that's more physical than them, and they just can't match it, don't match it. Yeah, and I, I think you saw that exactly. Uh, on the Jake Browning interceptions, I'm, I mean, the first one, it's like, what the hell happened? What are you doing? Right. How does that ball ever end up where he threw it? Obviously, he wasn't trying to throw it there. He was trying to throw it away, um, but... That was just a weird play. The second one where you talked about he's trying to force it, it almost felt like there, too. He got confused thinking they were in man when they were in a zone. Because yeah. yeah. that, that guy dropped back, and he almost never took him into account. It didn't look like. I mean, he, he was still trying to force it into traffic, right. even if he saw what he saw correctly. Um, but I don't think he ever saw the, the guy who actually made the interception in that play. And the third one was a great play by the defense. Um I did not think his performance was nearly as bad as everyone else did, where they're like, oh, coming back down to earth, he's a backup quarterback. Yeah, like, no, he looked a lot like the same guy who we've seen the last few weeks. The difference is, this is the NFL, and his mistakes cost him this time, and the defense made a really good play on the one, and that's what happens in the NFL. It, as, as Zach Taylor said, it's a humbling league. You can, you can make a few mistakes one week and get away with them, and you look great, and then the next week you make a mistake or two, and... They cost you the entire game, and your team is out of it by halftime. And and I think that's what happened to Jake Browning. I don't think it's that he stinks all of a sudden, or uh, he he didn't he wasn't ready for the defenses that the Steelers threw at him. Well, and, and the fourth and inches play was was I think just, that literally was was this team against AFC North teams in a nutshell. Fourth and inches after you get stoned on third and third and one because um, you're not physical enough to push, you decide to throw a pass. And he yep. had no chance because but before he could throw the ball, he's got a, a zero blitzer right in his face. And he's just got to try to lob one for T. And again, the timing was messed up and all of those things. So that's points off the board because you refuse to run the ball in that situation. Yeah, it's it's weird too getting into the coaching conversation because it feels like every single week with every loss right. that happens with the Bengals, we have to relitigate whether or not Zach Taylor can coach. And it's just like, look at what this coaching staff has done the last few weeks with Joe Burrow down the wins they've come up with, the the offensive game plans that they've put together, all of these things that have been just outstanding. For me, for one loss to happen and then everyone to freak out and start talking about Zach Taylor is overmatched and he can't coach is ridiculous. At the same time, I am interested in your opinion. When I see Mike Tomlin, I would put him maybe up at the top of the NFL 
coaching ranks right now. He's, I think, as good as there is in the entire league. I don't know exactly where Zach Taylor fits in that conversation. Did you feel like this was a, a thing where it's like, Zach Taylor has no chance against Mike Tomlin in a in an important game like that because that really hasn't been the narrative over the last. No, that, that that was gonna, yeah, that was gonna be my answer. I mean, it's it, it's not like every time they've met Mike Tomlin has won these matchups and the Steelers right. have won these matchups. I mean, let's not forget Ryan Finley on a Monday night when Pittsburgh needed a win, Mike Tomlin couldn't out coach that Bengals group. So for whatever reason this year, and I think again, I think you take the entirety of the AFC North into the picture. Listen, the Bengals have wanted to do this with finesse football, spread you out, throw it. They really aren't an AFC North-style team, and that's fine. Listen, if, if you want to try to set yourself apart and be different, go for it. That's all well and good until it's not all well and good. And I think that's what's unfortunate for them this year. It has really shown its its ugly head that they just aren't physical enough on both sides of the football when they play these AFC North teams. And um, it, it's really reared its ugly head in all of them, especially on the ground. The Bengals have averaged 72 yards per game on the ground against the North foes and Tennessee, if you lump them in. And the AFC North foes and Tennessee lumped in have averaged 163 yards and almost five yards a carry. You tell me where these games have been won or lost. Has it been coaching or has it been physicality? Yeah, I mean, that's pretty glaring right there. Speaking of that, I mean, you're talking about the physicality, Skinny, but the Bengals defense as a whole has given up more explosive plays than any team in the NFL. Some of that is certainly big chunk running plays. When we say explosive plays, we're talking 10 or more on the ground, 20 or more through the air. Um, part of that is the physicality in the run game, I think for certain, but it's not just that obviously, because a lot of this is, is passing yardage too. What do you attribute that to all the explosive plays that they've given up? Yeah. I, I'm going to try to write a piece about that today. After we talk to Lou Anarumo and, and get a couple of players in the locker room, I'm actually going to write it tomorrow, but I'm going to gather information today. I think it's the, the marriage of lack of consistent pass rush with guys on the back end, either being young and making young mistakes or in the case of Chidobia Wujie, unfortunately looks like losing a step because of that knee injury. And um, I don't think he's a bad player. I just, I, I think he's, that injury is compromising. I think you saw that on, on Saturday. Guys just ran right by him um, in one-on-one -on -one matchups. And so if you're going to put him out there on one-on-ones, you know, last year a healthy Chidobia Wujie was winning almost every one of those one-on-one, -on -one, or they weren't even looking his direction because he was winning those one-on-one matchups. So if the pass rush isn't getting home and you're not able to hold up in one-on-ones, it's a recipe for disaster. It's a recipe for what you're seeing, which is big chunk plays down the field. Um, you know, the, the, the first one to George Pickens was, was more simply Daxel taking a bad angle, but that's a young guy taking a bad angle as a safety and off he goes to the races instead of him being tackled after a 12 yard gain. And so I think it's the combination of that. I mean, if you look at the pass rush, I mean, obviously Trey Henderson's having a banner year with 16 sacks, but, but after that, I think they've got, for defensive linemen, I'm doing this off the top because I just actually wrote the number down. I don't have the piece of paper in front of me. Um, I think for defensive linemen, the rest of them combined have, I believe, 11 sacks, maybe something like that. Um, you know, Miles Murphy's third, uh, third or fourth with three sacks, and he doesn't even feel like he's played hardly at all this year. So right. I think it's that. It's the lack of consistent pass rush mixed with on the back end. Where listen, if you're rushing and the quarterback like they did to pick and steps back, doesn't have to worry about holding it for five seconds. Just see, it says, oh, there's my one-on-one. -on -one hello, I'm going to hit you and don't have to worry about a pass rush. It's a, it's a recipe for disaster of big plays. Yeah, I think with this year, the turnover that they had, the injury to Wouzier, obviously you've had some other injuries now with Reader and everything. I think it's kind of you look at this, you chalk it up, you learn from it, and you try to improve whatever it is you can improve in the offseason. If it's a problem going forward next year, these chunk plays again, 
then you have to really start talking about, okay, what's the issue with this scheme or Lou Anarum? Because he's been very good, and that's really carried this team the last few years, especially late in the season, is the defense and their ability to overcome giving up some yardage by being opportunistic and creating turnovers and all those things. If this continues into next year and, and they're still among the top of the league in terms of giving up explosive plays, something's got to change. I mean, you can't just go on and letting that continue to be a thing. I do think this year, as much as we wanted to say, losing two experienced safeties can't cause all this disruption in your defense. I think it honestly did have a lot to do with it. I think the communication is just different. I think your safety valves are just a little bit different in terms of those guys cleaning up some mistakes by, by the guys up front, maybe. Um, and, and letting, you know, instead of a, a, a 15 or 20 yard run, maybe sometimes those were only six yard runs and, yeah, so, you know, someone was coming in to make a play from the backside because they took a better angle or what have you. So I'm willing to say, it's mostly the turnover this year and some of the injuries that they've had, but it's definitely something that has to be cleaned up before next season. Yeah, I will say on the good news front, right before we started the podcast, uh, we're doing, we do, doing it on a Wednesday morning for those who may be listening to it at a different time. Uh, just a few minutes before the podcast, the Bengals did uh, issue a release of, of uh, announcing that Cam Taylor Britt has been designated for return from IR, which means he's in a 21-day window to practice without counting against the roster, but it also means they could activate him at any time. And I guess the hope would be, and we'll find out when we talk to Zach this afternoon, is, you know, if Cam Taylor Britt's healthy enough to go this week, you know, what, what role does that relegate Shinobi Wujie to? What role does that relegate DJ Turner to? I mean, do they roll with DJ Turner and, and Cam? Cam, certainly, if he's healthy, is one of the corners. Um, or do you have to swallow hard and go, hey, we got two games to win, and we love Cheeto, but it just – Again, he's hampered and compromised, and we just can't keep rolling him out there as much as we're rolling him out there. They had to do it by default because of Cam's injury, and it sucks because he was so great last season before getting hurt. And, and I get it. I mean, the, the the human body can only do so much. Yeah, who would you go with right now if it was your choice? Would you stick with DJ Turner, or would you go with I would. Cheeto? And, and no, I'd, I'd I'd maybe rotationally do them to give Cheeto some snaps, and maybe it's DJ on the first couple of downs, and um, you know maybe if you decide you're gonna play some zone, Cheeto's in there for some zone stuff. Um, you know, give him some snaps, but I, I think I'm rolling with the with the more athletic guys at this moment. All right, the Bengals will take on the Chiefs this Sunday at 425. That game is at Arrowhead Stadium. Skinny, with this Chiefs team, they just don't look right, and I'm not sure exactly why that is. They still have Pat Mahomes. They still have Travis Kelsey. They're still as dangerous as any team in the NFL, but they don't look like this unbeatable juggernaut that's been running the, the league the last few years. What's your take on this matchup here? Well, I would say this. If, if you're sitting there as a Chiefs fan or maybe even in a, a neutral observer, you go, hey, you want your offense to get right? Face the Bengals defense at the moment. I mean, so I'm, I'm wondering if that's what their mindset would be. But, boy, did they not look a mess on Christmas Day. Um, the trick play down by the goal line was a little much for me. I, I get Andy Reid is the king of trick plays, and they're really good with those in the red zone. You know, Pat Mahomes has had a lot of time to throw this year. I think he's actually – uh, had the most time he's ever had in, in, in his career to to get rid of the football or hold on to the football. But he also had some time on, on Monday, but also scrambled nine times, the most he's ever scrambled, uh, I think, in a game at least this season, which tells me his receivers, and they're not very good, just aren't getting any separation for him. And so if you're the Bengals, then maybe it's a get-right game for your defense if you get your best cornerback back too, right? Yeah, I, that's what I see more than anything is I just don't think he has the talent at receiver that he normally – I mean, Travis Kelsey's great, but he is a tight end. And well, you can see his you frustration level. Yeah, if you don't have guys taking the top off the defense ever, you don't have guys getting open on the, the route. I mean, that's got to make ball. it tough on those two players to to carry the entire load all season, and it feels like some of that frustration is boiling over right now. 
yeah, they lead the NFL and drop passes as a, as a, as a, as a team. And that's, that's part of it too. It's can't get separation when they do guys are dropping it. Um, you know, the rice kid seems like he's his next best option, but I'm not even sure they have a third option at the moment in the passing game. And uh, that that's a tough way to live. Yeah, definitely. We'll talk more about that matchup when we get to our betting segment. Any final thoughts here on this week as we lead up to that game with the Bengals? No, I mean, color me one that, that was was shocked and maybe I shouldn't have been that. I mean, if you really look at it, all the turmoil in Pittsburgh last week, backs against the wall, standalone home Saturday game, the crowd really showed up. I mean, they I, I was a few minutes before kickoff it was kind of a, a misty day and, you know, it wasn't cold for, for a Pittsburgh day. You know, there's a lot of empty seats initially, and then, boy, by kickoff, it filled in, and that place got as Pittsburgh loud as it normally does. I think the crowd helped carry the load a little bit there, too. And um, for the Bengals, the worst-case scenario whenever they play Pittsburgh, probably whenever they play any team right now, is you get behind by a couple, three scores, you're almost done when they can tee off on you. So I think part of me would just take this as a one-off and go, listen, better team, played better that day. Bengals have struggled with the physicality of the North. You got to still, you still have a, a more than a fighting chance to make the playoffs. So stop feeling sorry for yourself if you are, and and let's see what they can do these final two weeks. Yeah, I was covering the Xavier Seton Hall game as that Bengals game started. We had press conference as the game kicked off, and I was driving home towards the end of the first quarter. And I think Dan Horde's <laughs> quote was something along the lines of, "As as the first quarter came to an end, they were going to commercial." He's like, "And the first quarter went about as bad as it possibly could have if you're a Bengals fan," and it just pretty much said it all right there. Like you said, once they got to that point, it's like, "Well, they're screwed now because the Steelers' defense is coming and." They ain't going to have an answer for that. And that's that's exactly how it played out. So we'll come back to the Bengals there for our betting segment. But let's move along to college basketball for the time being. We'll start with that Xavier Seton Hall game that I referenced on Saturday. The Musketeers bounce back after an embarrassing loss at St. John's. They pull off a 20-point win at the Centos Center over Seton Hall, 74-54. They'll play Villanova next Wednesday. Uh, Skinny, I, I, I mean, the Xavier team obviously – inconsistency is the key here. I mean, they're just going to be inconsistent because they're young and they're not all that talented, but I didn't have them winning any Big East games by 20 on my bingo card and certainly not <laughs> any Big East games that weren't against Georgetown or DePaul. What, well, you see the score. I mean, you're covering the, the Bengals game, so I know you weren't watching this game, at least not in its entirety. What do you make of it when you see the, the Musketeers win by 20 over Seton Hall? The 74 part probably isn't surprising, right? Because we've talked about when they can make shots at home, they're going to score and they're going to win probably the home games they should because because they'll make shots. And Quincy Oliveri did that. The guards did that. So the 74 didn't surprise. The 54 is the part that shocked me. And I'll ask you because you were you were there. What led to the 54? Was it a bad night from Seton Hall, a bad day from Seton Hall? Was it Xavier locked in and doing anything different defensively? I thought Xavier was much better defensively, but it was interesting because after the game, when we're talking about defense in the press conference and we asked maybe a question or two already about the defense. And I asked uh, Sean Miller specifically about the job Desmond Claude did on Kadari Richmond. Cause I, I just think he's really hard to guard and can kind of break you down if you don't have a good matchup for him. And Sean almost immediately, he's like, yeah, our defense was solid. And they kind of immediately changed the topic back to the offensive side and started talking about their lack of turnovers. And it almost suggested to me that he didn't want to say it, but he's like, we just don't think Seton Hall is that talented on offense. Like we knew we had the matchups to guard them and we'd be okay against them. I think, and the more I look at it, the more I think the biggest key for Xavier this year in terms of matchups is going to be facing teams that aren't very good in the front court. Right. Because right. that's, that's what Seton Hall is. They, I mean, they wanted a boo Usman in the transfer portal for a reason. 
You know, they were that's they lost out to Xavier for him. And the reason they wanted a guy like that is because he would have started for them. He's about as good as they have in their front court. And that's been Xavier's problem for most of this year is their front court just isn't as talented as most of these other teams. Now, the bad news for Xavier is you ain't going to see a lot of teams like Seton Hall in the Big East in terms of front courts. Most of the front courts are going to be very good. So I'm not sure how that'll that'll play out in terms of getting more matchups like that. But I, I do think that was a big part of this. I'd also say the inconsistency thing, I mean, you look at the games against Oakland and Delaware, those were defensive issues. I mean, they couldn't guard Trey Townsend. They couldn't guard Jalen Trent for Delaware. But against St. John's, they couldn't score at all against the matchup zone, and they only got a few shots attempts for Quincy Oliveri, period. So it's like, I don't think it's just one thing with this Xavier team that's been costing no. them in games, and I don't think it's just one thing to worry about going forward. It's going to be every night you're going to have to hope each part shows up and the matchup works out, and they get some shots going. And the biggest thing on the offensive side is they've got to have Quincy Oliveri making some shots for them. And again, that's a big ass to do on road games, especially. He may do a few, a handful, but to do that on the road, I think is tough. To do it at home on a consistent basis, yeah, you should expect that. Not every game, but uh, more times than not. And that's why I think when push comes to shove, like we've talked about, this is probably uh, just barely below 500 Big East record for Xavier when it all comes to fruition. Yeah, it very much feels like that. And it's funny, even, you know, because I wanted to start going heavy down the, well, they're probably going to be okay at home, but not so much on the road narrative. But then you look back at their losses, it's like they lost three in a row at the Centos Center, and two of those were by games. So it's like, it's not even like they've just been great at the Centos Center this year. Uh, I really think it's going to be a game-to-game thing with this team, and it's really going to be hard to expect any level of consistency out of them, unless they turn a corner at some point. So right. we'll see about that. Cincinnati beat Stetson 83-75 on Friday. They'll host Evansville this coming Friday night. Skinny, I want to have a conversation about Dan Skillings with this. I was, was, was going to bring him up if you didn't, so there we go. I mean, I keep talking about him, but at this point, it, it, to me, it's like it's got to be incredibly frustrating if you're a UC fan or on the coaching staff. I mean, he put up 29 points in this game against Stetson on 11 of 14 shooting. Four of six from beyond the arc. He also had 10 rebounds. He's been rebounding the ball well all year. That's That hasn't been an issue at all. But, I mean, you, you know, so you now you go back to the NKU game. He had 25 points in that game. Eight of 12 from the field. Incredibly efficient. Also nine rebounds. 29 against Stetson and 10 rebounds. You also go back to that Howard game. At Howard, he had 16 points and uh, six rebounds. Very efficient again. So, But here's the problem. Out of their 12 games, he's also failed to score in double figures in half of them. And in five of them, he had two or fewer field goals. What do you make out of out of Dan Skillings at this point? I, I'm going to give you the positive and the negative. The negative is going to probably outweigh the positive. The positive would be, okay, maybe he is going to start taking some steps towards being that guy and being the alpha that you were hoping he would be scoring-wise. Again, it's not very consistent, but maybe this was a huge step to pile up this kind of points. But for me, the negative is this. The three teams you mentioned, no knock to NKU, but NKU, Howard, and Stetson aren't exactly a who's who of college basketball. Um, they're in, you know, they're, they're, they're mid-majors for a reason. Um, it almost feels like when he out-athletes you, um, and he does in those games, he's really good. And when the athleticism is as good or maybe better at the position he plays, he just is unable to score in the ways he wants to score. And I think that's the negative going into the Big 12 because you're going to see more of those guys who are like him or better than he's going to be better than. Yeah, and that's that's the big concern, I think, if you're a UC fan because when he's scoring like that, all of a sudden, they look really good. Yes. I mean, they, they have that go-to alpha score, and he looks capable of doing it. That's the thing that drives me crazy, I think, is that he's so efficient, and he makes it look 
so easy against some of these mid-major teams to where it's like, how can you not do 80% of this or 75% of this against a high-major team? Because that would be enough. That That is what this team is missing on the offensive end. But it's like, it's all or nothing with him right now. And UC can't afford that. They need him to have some level of consistency at, from a scoring perspective. Yeah, I was going to look up what he did against Dayton. I don't think it was much. We know it wasn't much against Xavier. Um, so, again, it feels like in those upper echelon games that UC has played, there haven't been very many of them. He just isn't as good. Um, but, again, the flip side would be, all right, maybe this was a light bulb moment. You know what? It may not, it's not going to be 29 against Iowa State or against Texas or against Oklahoma, but can it be high teens? Um, you know, maybe that's where we are. Maybe this was the light bulb moment for him. I tend to just think it's when he's been better than those guys on the floor, he goes and gets his and is able to get his. Yeah, just looking at the Dayton and Xavier games, he had two points against Xavier on one for seven shooting. He was 0 for 2 from beyond the arc in that game, had six rebounds. Against Dayton, he had six points. He was three for eight from uh, the field, didn't take any threes in that game, and he had five rebounds in that game. So, yeah, there's no doubt about it. The two the two losses that they've had were games where he was a complete zero on the offensive end, and they just they just can't afford that. I agree. All right, let's move on to Kentucky. They smacked Louisville 95-76. They'll host Illinois State this coming Friday night. The the Louisville game, I mean, we we talked about it last week, Skinny. We knew this was not going to be much of a game. We expected a blowout. Um, Antonio Reeves goes for 30 in the game. I thought Trey Mitchell was fantastic. He had 18 points, 12 boards, three blocks, two steals. The one thing that just jumps off the page to me about this Kentucky team that isn't going away, and I thought, okay, this is nice, it's cute, it's it's going perfectly with the narrative Cal needs for this year early in the season, but now we're we're getting to the point where we're almost midway through the season and it's still a storyline, Skinny. They're tied for the third highest three-point shooting percentage in the entire country at 41.4%, and they're seventh and three-pointers made per game at 10.5. So it's not like they're just super selective and hardly shooting any of them, but Reed Shepard's making a bunch. It's the, the Reeves is shooting a lot. Dillingham's shooting a decent amount. Shepard's shooting a decent amount. And they're all shooting at a really high clip. This three-point shooting thing is, is a real difference maker for a team that's as athletic as Kentucky. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you got so many guys that can attack the rim, too. So in, in that case, you know, if you're attacking to a kick-out open three um, – if you can shoot a little bit, and obviously these guys can, you are going to shoot a high percentage to pick your poison. And that's why um, I think they're up to – I'm putting you on the spot. I do this every week. I meant to write my Ken Palm numbers down. I think they're up to 13th or 14th in, in offense. Yeah, Kentucky right now is sitting at 13th in offensive efficiency, 47th in defensive efficiency. They're 19th overall in Ken Palm. Rick, Rick I, mean, I, I think they finished top 10 in offense when it all when, when it all is said and done, especially now that they've got Bradshaw back to help some of those numbers too. I, I think they're elite offensively. And um, again, they're going to lose a weird game like they did to Wilmington where it's a game they don't make shots or they score 84 and the other team scores 88 because they still have defensive flaws, defensive issues. Now they've Helped a little bit by getting a couple of the seven-footers back. I think that has helped them a, a chunk. They didn't have those guys against Wilmington. You shouldn't have needed them, mind you, to beat Wilmington and Rupp. But, again, th- this team has defensive flaws that I think Cal's going to have to swallow hard and live by. And fa- if you're a fan, you're going to have to swallow hard because they are going to score. And maybe that's just this is just a year where they are so elite offensively that they go deep into March because of that. I think they're capable you, of it. You know, the defensive thing is interesting because – you look at sort of, uh, to steal your phrase, the line of demarcation for John Calipari's career at Kentucky, where it went from 
of Cal's the man, he's doing a great job to things have really sort of fallen off was 2020, basically. Up at, you know, 2019, they have the Elite Eight run. And then since then, nothing, basically. And you look at the biggest differences in his like Ken Palm numbers of all those teams. The, the one thing that you haven't seen since 2019 is a highly ranked defensive unit. They were eighth in the country in defense that year in 2019 when they went to the Elite Eight. All of the years prior to that, they were pretty darn good. You look at it, it's like eighth, 22nd, seven. So many rim, pro- yeah, you had so many rim protectors in those eras too. Yeah, exactly. And now, <laughs> now you go to you know in recent years since 2020, he hasn't had a team that's finished higher than 35th in defensive efficiency. This year's is sitting at 47th. Like you said, they're they're so good offensively right now, it almost feels like it doesn't matter. But I am interested to see if. They can get better defensively, and if that comes back to haunt them at some point, because oh, I, I, it, it I seems do. like it has. I, I do because I, you know when you've got somebody on the back end, it allows you to challenge more on the perimeter. That if you know you you go challenge and a guy goes by you for whatever reason, there's a seven footer waiting for him at the rim. Uh, I do think they can get better if they climb inside the top forty, top thirty five before the season's out and get the top ten offense. That's a recipe to go pretty deep in March. Absolutely, and that's the thing that like people when they start looking at that number. They don't factor in that you got on Yen, so probably the best shot blocker on the team hasn't been playing. You know, just and I'd love to see what that. Yeah, I'd love to see Rick. And again, I'm not asking to extrapolate at the moment. We can do this down the road. Just when those guys started to play and watch where that number started to creep. You know, lower and lower and lower, if you will. Yeah, and I, I you can do that on Bart Torvik and see how the yeah. the defensive efficiency number has changed since those guys were added. But I mean, you add Aaron Bradshaw, you add Yugan on Yenso. I think also even Adute the Arrow kind of shifting his role a little bit to right. more of a role guy off the bench to where you're not asking him to play the whole game. You're not asking him to be a big part of the offense. It's just like when you come off the bench, you are our defense energy rebounder guy. I think that's going to help them a little bit overall too on that end of the floor. So I, mean, they, I, I do actually depth. think the defense will get better. I know Cal likes to tighten the thing, but I mean, they're legitimately nine deep. Legitimately. Like, you're not putting a guy out there because you need a ninth guy. You legitimately can rotate through nine guys, maybe even throw a tenth if you need to. Yeah, I would say they're probably 10 deep, but they're they're going to have to basically cut someone out of the main rotation, I think, and and become a nine deep team with an option to go 10 if you, you have injuries or what have you. I, well, I think Cincinnati's kind of in that boat, too, where they're going to have to kind of trim their rotation to eight right. or nine and, and quit playing Odio Guama, you know? All right, NKU skinny. They lost at St. Mary's 92-56, but that I mean that really wasn't even the story from this game. No, the big story not. is going to be the loss of Sam Vincent who went down with a knee injury. It did not look good uh d- during that game. He he never came back. He, he basically he was going to a jump stop and then just crumbled afterwards. He was on crutches after the game, so not a good sign for NKU. The one thing that's kind of hard to understand about this NKU team is they've played pretty good basketball, I think, throughout the non-conference schedule. But the the, the losses that they've had, the, the St. Mary's game now, you go back to the UC game where they lost 90-66, to and the opening game of the season at Middle Tennessee State where they lost 74-57 to a Middle Tennessee State team that we thought was going to be good. They were picked to be at the top of their conference, but they have not played very well to this no, point. It's kind of startling to see how bad some of those losses have gotten, considering the rest of the games NKU has looked pretty darn good. Yeah, and I just wonder if sometimes that snowballs, right, where you've you've given the max effort you can against the better team, and you look up at the board, and it's you know it's it's just going to keep getting worse and worse. And and I I, trust me, I was just there last week as a coach where you almost can't stop it, Um, and teams are just better than you. Uh, You know, St. Mary's 
was really playing good basketball. They were highly thought of coming into the year. They were ranked. Then they kind of fell by the wayside a little bit. But they, they, I think NKU caught them at the wrong time, to be quite frank, because they were really starting to play the basketball that everybody thought they were as a top 25 team. Yeah, I mean, they beat Middle Tennessee State by 40 points two nights before right. NKU played them. So uh, we knew that was going to be a tough game going in. Now the big story for NKU becomes, can they survive in conference play, assuming Sam Vincent is going to miss a lengthy period here. And I, and I would imagine he will based on the way the, yeah, yeah, the way the injury looked. Um, What, what do you think their, their chances are of competing in the horizon league now without Sam Vincent? Well, I mean the the increased role for Jeremiah Israel there um, and him being able to score a little bit and and his athleticism helps, um, you know, Sam Vincent started and was a all league player for a reason. I think that's a big ask for Jeremiah Israel to step into those shoes. But the fact that he was coming along doesn't hurt, Rick. I mean, it's just the right time, and especially going into this league where you're not going to be overwhelmed with athletic guards, um, you know, tall, long athletic guards. I I think it's, you know, for him, it's the right time to kind of step into a a bigger role. Again, he's not going to go get you 16 a night, but he's shown he can score in double figures in limited some limited time. And so maybe he takes that next step forward that it feels like he's close to taking. I think it's going to be great for his career because it's only going to quicken that development process. The problem for NKU becomes the IQ factor that you lose with Sam Vincent. It's like right. it's great to have a body type that's similar to him and a guy Especially that Especially in that defense, right? Exactly. I mean that, that Sam understands what they're trying to accomplish so well and knows where everything knows where everyone else is going to be and he anticipates things so well. That's why he's led the conference in steals the last few years and is is a leader again this year. I mean it just you're missing a guy like that who is, I mean, quite honestly, as as well as Marquez works scores, and he is a fantastic player, Sam Vincent is their MVP on this team. So losing a guy like that on both ends of the floor is it's going to be really tough. I mean, this team still has some talent, and Michael Bradley, he he was their point guard that they brought up from the Division II level this offseason. He'll get back, he'll move back into the starting lineup. They have been pulling him off the bench. So it, the rotations will work okay. I think they'll have to play the freshman Randall Pettis, who hasn't really been playing much. He'll probably see some more minutes off the bench now. But in terms of just that having the, that leadership on the floor, that guy who knows what's supposed to happen and seems to always make those key plays for you, it, it's going to be a massive, massive loss. Um, is this a season ender for Vincent? That's a good question. I mean, we'll just we'll just have to wait yeah. and see yeah. what what they say with it. I mean, he he came out of that game. He was iced up. He had crutches. We had he had to get through like a twelve hour travel day. We left I, at one a.m. That, that, that's the thing nobody <laughs> thinks about, even with football injuries, right? Like, like you just you just don't roll on the plane and feel good, man. You just you, and then you kind of sit there for how many ever hours on a, on a flight. I mean. Those are no fun to begin with, let alone if you're dealing with something in your legs. Good gracious. Yeah, we had a 1 a.m. flight from oh. from there, from California, San Francisco to Chicago, and then had a four-hour layover in Chicago. But that flight to there was United instead of Delta. And for whatever reason, it was one of those giant jets where you got the three rows, and it yep. was the most uncomfortable flight I've ever been on. I couldn't imagine had I had a serious knee injury with like ice and crutches around it, how it felt to sit on the, the plane for him. So brutal travel day. Uh, I know he was getting an MRI when he got back, but obviously they haven't said anything officially about what that injury is yet. So we'll, we'll wait to hear. I'm sure we'll hear something uh, around game time this week. So uh, they, they play Purdue Fort Wayne on Friday night. All right, Skinny, let's move on to college football, where we will, before we record next week, we will actually have watched the 
semifinals of the college football playoff. That's Alabama against Michigan in the four versus one game and Texas against Washington in the three versus two game. Skinny, which matchup do you most want to see in the championship? In the championship? Yeah, who would you like? To, I mean, we'll, we'll talk Al- about the actual matchups themselves, but who do you want to see in the championship game? The Alabama-Texas rematch. Yeah, I, I do. Um, yeah. And I think that's what we're going to I think that's what we're going to wind up seeing to be honest with you. I do too. But before we get into the actual games, I have one more general question for you. Rank the quarterbacks for me that are in the semifinals. You have Jalen Milrow, JJ McCarthy, Quinn Ewers and Michael Penix Jr. Rank those four quarterbacks right now because I don't think this is like your typical year of the college football playoffs where you have star-studded quarterbacks. Well, I don't know, man. I I, I think Quinn Ewers is really good. In fact, I think I'd rank him one. I think I'd rank Milrow two just because of how he's come along. I mean, I, I think the fact what Alabama has done is in part because of the progress that, that Jalen Milrow has made. Penix is a close third. He would be very close. He'd be a two and two A, and then McCarthy would be a clear cut fourth, in my opinion. Listen, he does what they ask him to do. Don't make mistakes. Be a game manager. Make an occasional play. But they win with their defense in the running game. So I mean, he's clearly number four on the list. Yeah, I would go Ewers, Penix, Milrow, McCarthy. I think, but I'm with you on Milrow and Penix. It's hard to separate them, um, and that's really how I feel about Washington in general. All the numbers say they are a good team. All of Michael Penix's accomplishments suggest that he is a fantastic quarterback, and yet I just don't buy them being this elite team or him being an elite quarterback. I don't. I'm not in on Washington. Tell me why I'm wrong, Skinny. Well, I mean, down the stretch, that's why I just looked this up. They beat Utah by seven. Utah is a nice team. They obviously had to overcome a ton of injuries, and that kind of derailed them a little bit. Um, beat Oregon State on the road by two, beat Washington State at home by three, and then beat Oregon by three. Not going to apologize for winning those games, but obviously um, they've all been close games for a reason. They're they're not elite defensively. They they did do – I mean, they put up some crazy numbers early in the year, and it felt like their offense kind of bogged down a little bit. Again, not completely where they're scoring in the teens, but not you know dynamic. They did enough against Oregon with the 34 points, but it, it just feels like they've kind of gotten by. Again, you don't have to apologize for it, and I think they deserve to be in over over Florida State based on the situations of the quarterbacks, no matter what anybody else thinks. Um, so I deserve. I think they deserve to be there, but yeah, I, I think honestly, I think Texas has a potential to blow them out. And it's it's hard. Look, the, Texas is a four point favorite in this game, and I think a lot of that probably has to do with the brand of Texas too, because if you make you know. People want to bet on Texas. There are a ton of Texas fans nationally. So I think that probably factors into this line a little bit. So I don't think they're like Vegas sees a huge separation between these teams on a neutral field ultimately. But I, I just, I mean, even Penix has been pretty damn good in the big games that you're listing off. Like he was yeah. good in the Oregon games. He's played yes, he well in the games where he's needed to play well in. And, and like Texas's strength is probably their run defense, which quite honestly, doesn't really matter against Washington. They're going to push the ball downfield via the pass. They're not going to try to run on you very much. So I'm not sure how big that advantage even is for Texas. And yet I just can't find a way to pick Washington or like Washington in this game. I'm all over Texas. I can't either. I'm, I'm with you. I, I think Texas is going to score in the forties in this game. And I don't know if Washington can keep up with that. I just don't. Yeah. Now I do think it's going to be a fun game because I think both I of these teams are going to take a lot of sure. shots. It's going to be a big play type of game. It's not going to be a defensive struggle. Now, the other, the other game, and it's actually the first game on Monday at 5 p.m., is the Alabama-Michigan game. I think the story of this is the Alabama offensive line against the Michigan defense. That's where I think it's going strength on strength right there. I think that Alabama offensive line has just turned into a dominant unit like they were expected to be. And Michigan's defense is obviously awesome as well. 
how do you see this one playing out? Yeah, I, I, I honestly, I, I just think Alabama's gotten its act together, especially offensively. They're not as dominant as they, they've been in years past defensively, but they still got plenty of dudes. And, and listen, if you can just slow that running game of Michigan down a little bit, I don't think they're going to stop it. But if you can get Michigan into third and fives and third and sixes, you know, enough times, I think Alabama wins this game 30 to 17 ish, something along those lines. I'm with you. Oh, I'm with you on that one. I, I like Alabama. The SEC just means more. It's different than playing through that Big Ten schedule. Uh, I, I quite honestly, this might be the most impressive coaching job by Nick Saban this year because when I saw them early in the season, I saw Jalen Milrow early this season. I thought they were going to be a disaster in the SEC. I did not think they would win a lot of games, um, and they've really turned it around, and, and they're playing good football. So I think they will beat Michigan. I think we will have an Alabama-Texas final, if I had to guess. Um, I don't feel super strongly about those picks. Definitely stronger about Texas, I would say, than than Alabama. But uh, that's that's pretty much the way I see it. I think, I think the Texas-Washington game is going to be great. I don't know about the Alabama-Michigan game. Do, do you have a... A thought yeah, on like I, said, better? I, I think more fun will be the last game, but I think you're going to just see you're going to see a real physical game in Alabama, Michigan, and um, I just think Alabama will be the better team. I, I I'm going Alabama by like I said, thirty to seventeen feels right to me. Okay, so that Michigan was a one and a half point favorite in that um, Alabama Michigan game. The total forty four and a half there, so you're on basically uh, Alabama and the under in that game, and then uh, Monday at eight forty five, the Texas. Washington game, Texas is a four-point favorite. The total is 63-and-a-half, and, a half. and uh, you said you're on Texas there easily, right? Yeah, I'll go 42-27 Texas. I think they're just going to be hard to stop. Okay. Uh, let's go into our actual betting picks, that we, the local games that we always do for the show. Last week, we were each one-and-one. One. We had the Bengals and the over. They overhit. The Bengals did not. I'm 47-50-3. You are 52-45-3. Neither one of our best bets hit. You had a teaser that that missed, and I had uh, Chase Brown touchdown that did not hit. So that will bring us to Friday at noon. We have the Gator Bowl, Skinny. It's Clemson against Kentucky. Clemson is a five-point favorite. The total is 46. I mean, a lot of Kentucky guys have opted to play. I mean, J.J. Weaver's opted to come back for another year. Ray Davis has opted to play. I mean, it's it's kind of crazy to me. I, I I think Kentucky wins this game outright. I really do. I'm, I'm going to go Kentucky 27-23. 27-23, hilarious. We are a point off on each score. I had 28-24 Kentucky, so we're both on Kentucky in the over here. I, for whatever reason – Mark Stoops seems to get these guys to want to play in these games and to to care about them and and to show up. So I, I like Kentucky here. Uh, Friday at 8 p.m., we've got the Cotton Bowl. It's Missouri against Ohio State. The Buckeyes are a one-and-a-half-point favorite. The total is 49. This one's weird to me because I don't know what Missouri opt-outs there are. Um, you know, is Devin Brown quarterbacking, I'm assuming? Yeah, they, he's, he's all in. Uh, Ryan Day is so excited about – Devin Brown's opportunity to just take this job and then run with it into spring. Yeah, I, I, it's hard for me to pick against Ohio State here, but I think the quarterback issue is real. You know, maybe they do tailor the package for Devin Brown's skill set, and he runs for 140 yards and throws for 200, and all is right. I, I'll go Ohio State. I, I just have a hard time picking Missouri. They had a great year, but again, I don't know. I honestly don't know the Missouri opt-outs. Uh, I'll go Ohio State 31-23. 31-23, so that would be Ohio State and the over there. The total is 49. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the thing about all these bowl games. If you're not in the college football playoff, the game just doesn't matter 
No one really cares. And it's all about deciding which team is going to have more guys show up to play and that actually want to be there than the other team. And that's difficult. The thing with Ohio State is, you know, Devin Brown wants to be there and wants to play really well because this is an opportunity to kind of get a leg up on that job before he has to compete with five-star freshmen and uh, whatnot going into the spring. I, I think... And Ryan Day has said no one has opted out yet. I mean, obviously, they had a quarterback transfer to Syracuse yeah, already, but yeah. uh, but no one else has opted out yet. Marvin Harrison Jr. did not go through practice, but he was there and was on a bike working out. It seems like all these guys might actually play for Ohio State. And I mean, maybe Marvin Harrison Jr. will opt out the last second, but like Cade Stover was practicing. Uh, all these guys, for the most part, were out there. I think they're going to have everybody – I'm going Ohio State 24, Missouri 14. So Ohio State and the under for me. One thing to note here, I've been pushing Ohio State overs all year because I kept thinking the number was dipping, their defense right. being so good, they're going to put up points. They went three and nine overs under. So nine unders, three overs this year. They have been an under team all year long. I'm going to stick with that trend here. I'm going to take the under. Finally, we have Sunday 425. It's the Bengals at the Chiefs. The Chiefs are a seven-point favorite. The total is 44. What do you think? Every time these teams play, it's a field goal difference, so I'm going to go with the field goal difference. I'll go Chiefs 23, Bengals 20 on a Harrison-Butker field goal at the end. That, that That's the way the balloon pops popped last season. That's the way the balloon pops this season, sadly. All right, so you are on the Bengals and the over there. Bengals to lose the game but cover the seven. I'm going to go Chiefs 28-17. Uh, I just – I think – Last week, kind of, again, I didn't think it was a terrible performance or anything, but I think last week did expose the Bengals, took a little wind out of their sails. It's kind of like the they were floating there for a couple of weeks. Everything was going right. They could do no wrong, and it was all falling their way. I think they've come back to reality a little bit. So I'm going to roll with the Chiefs in the over. One thing of note, I mean, what a strange season, right? I mean, it's been a season of streaks. Um, you know, they, they, they lose two in a row. At one point they win four in a row At another point they lose three in a row. Then they come back and win three in a row. And here's that single loss hanging out there. Are they able to bounce back from it or does it become another in a row? And that's, that's where I think we're at. Yeah. It's, it's, it's been a roller coaster season for the fans. I mean, even starting with the Joe Burrow injury before the year even got going, it's been riding those, those waves the whole way. And we're not quite done yet, but I I feel like we're, we're going to stay on a downswing here. So skinny, what is your favorite bet of the week? All right, go back to the 14 teaser route. I'm going to take Denver at home, laying five and a half down to a. It's going to be a. This will actually be a six and a half point teaser. I'm going to take them up to one. Actually, I'm going to make this a five team teaser. I'm going to take Seattle at home against Pittsburgh up to three. I'm going to take the New York Giants at home against the Rams up to 12 and a half. I'm taking Jacksonville at home down to a pick'em, and I'm going to take Baltimore at home against Miami up to three. They just kicked everybody's ass, and I'm going to get some points. Yeah, I think I'll take that with Baltimore. And that'll probably be the one that cost me. All right, so that was Denver minus one and a half, Seattle plus three, New York Giants plus 12 and a half, Jacksonville Pickham, and Baltimore Ravens plus three, correct? Correct. All right. My favorite bet, Iowa-Tennessee will be playing in a bowl game, Skinny. Let's keep the fun rolling. Under 36, baby. Iowa on a streak of eight straight unders. Let's make it nine. Man, Tennessee could score 38 by itself. They could. They could, but they won't because Iowa will punt them to death. I would say if you looked at the punt prop for that game by chance, I was wondering what it would be. I, I, I don't know. I don't even know if they'll offer that that line anymore in, a, in an Iowa game because it's impossible to set. Well, 
Josh Heupel likes to go for it on fourth down too. So there's the oh, yin and true. yang. We'll see, yeah, that we will see complete opposites in this game, but uh, I'm I'm going to ride with Iowa controlling the pace there. Fair enough. All right, let's get in some Ask Skinny Anything. Skinny, when will the Detroit Pistons win another game? Um, I'm going to go November 23rd of 2024. They're going to go this whole the whole rest of this season without winning a game. It's the most. It is mind boggling, is it not? I, how does this even happen? Like how, how it's the it NBA. Happen? It's not, you know, I mean, this is just, I, I, there's too much parody. There's too many guys taking nights off. There's too much make or miss equations to factor in here for you to be this bad, this many nights in a row. Like you have to be it actively is. trying to lose. And you have a dude. And listen, I know NBA teams more need to have more than a dude. Kate Cunningham had 37 points in the second half of their most recent loss, trying to carry the load. And that wasn't enough. It's it's a sad state of affairs right now. I, I really don't. When do you consider betting on them? Like at some point they have to win, right? When do you get that's, on that train? That, that, that's a great question. I, I I don't know the answer. That's that's a terrific question. Uh, honestly, do they get to double digit wins this year? I don't think they do. Uh, they really. I mean, to put us straight together like this, it's hard to imagine they could. But at some point you have to win like three in a row now, right? Do you? Not not with that group. No, horrifying. Uh, what do you think of DeMar Hamlin being the favorite to win comeback player of the year? Um, I'd have to look at the others in the mix. I think it's, it, it's a nice story, a nice bow on it. Um, I mean, truthfully, how many players have literally come back to life to win comeback player of the year in all seriousness? Uh, the answer would be none, right? Um, that's, that's pretty spectacular. Jesus had a pretty good run around Easter several years ago. Boom, boom. Yeah. I mean, I don't I, I get I get where people are going with this question though, like the whole dramatized story of DeMar. I mean, he's a guy who's been inactive most of the year, right? Like has he has he yeah, even been playing a little bit lately? Games? Yeah, he's been playing a little bit lately. He's actually the personal protector on punts. I know I saw him the other day. So um he's played a little bit here lately, but I do think it is it would put a neat bow on it, to be quite frank. Yeah. I, I look look, if you're upset about this, this is what I would tell you. Who it's the comeback player of the year. Who cares? Like, no one actually cares about this award, so... Um, Bengals fans cared when it was Joe Burrow. Come on now. Did you, though? I mean, did you actually care? Or did you just have to go down and write a stupid 400-word well, post about it? Fair enough. Fair point. Yeah, I mean, no one actually cares about the Comeback Player of the Year. Is Skinny in favor or nah of the NFHS adopting a shot clock for high school basketball? If not, Absolutely. is it because he's a fan of the horrendous basketball played in the GCL or in Kentucky, is it the fear of moving closer to class basketball? His reason not to be in favor. Yeah, I, I would. I hate. I would hate this. I, I <laughs> listen. I think. I think part of the thing with the shot clock that I don't think people understand is, um, I think even college teams struggle with this a little bit. I mean, you got to have somebody at the end of a shot clock have the playmaking ability to go get a shot. There's not enough high school players that have that one-on-one playmaking ability to do that. Um, I also think or, again when you have when you have obvious mismatches of enrollment. Trust me, I coach at one of the smallest schools in the state of Kentucky. I saw it last week. We played 6A Bryan Station. They were simply better. Um, and I'm okay with it. I'm okay. Sometimes you got to compete against better and, and just see how you do. Um, we didn't hold the ball. We lost 100 to 66. I mean, so we were trying to run up and down the floor with them, which was fine. Um, but at the same time, yeah, I, I, I just don't. I think the other part too is are there really enough schools, especially in Kentucky, um, that have workers? To add another worker to do the shot. You barely got enough people to work the clock and work the score state. Work the score book. 
that that's the real issue that I don't think people take into account for. I know it sounds silly to be like, really, you can't pay someone $15 or whatever to get a student there. You can't trust me. I've been involved. I've seen athletic directors at the high school level. I covered it for, you know, over a decade and you covered it much longer than that. It is a constant issue to find people to work the clock, find people to work the chains for a football game, find people to work the lines for a volleyball game. All of these things are like, it's a constant fight with parents, volunteers, workers, what have you. So just finding someone to operate another piece of equipment and purchase the equipment for a lot of some of these schools would be overwhelming. I think that's the real issue. The whole, like, you got to have guys to make plays. No, you don't skinny. You shoot before the shot clock ends. You run good offense. You don't hold the ball for 30 seconds on each possession. That's how you eliminate the end of the shot clock thing. If you're shooting at the end of the shot clock, it's because you ran shooting offense. I don't agree with that part of it. I mean, just because you're in your offense doesn't mean you're getting a good look in 30 seconds. Well, then you didn't run good enough offense. I mean, that that is truly like it to me. It teaches kids to make decisions, and that's what you should be doing at that level. All the the coaches who hold the ball I, for I, a full I possession, they're ruining I, players. Yeah, I completely disagree with that. I completely well, disagree with that. I I just I, I you you have to make decisions and play fast to learn the game. Holding the ball, standing around, passing in the four corners does not help you. I didn't say that. I mean, hell, we we run five out. We're trying to attack the basket, but there's times we run it. To where a six pass doesn't get us a good look, and that's probably the end of the thirty second shot clock. Right, and th- and that team won on that possession. Then you, th- they, they got, they got to stop. That's called a shot yeah, clock I violation, was, there, coach. I, I would tell you this: that I think you will see class basketball in Kentucky if it comes to the shot clock. I really do. Well, I don't think that you're getting a shot clock either way, so I don't think it matters. No, I with, I'm with you. Yeah, I'm yeah. with you on that. What's the most skinny has ever won or lost on a bet? Um, I did win five figures once on a pick, uh, a pick four at Santa Anita or actually at Hollywood park. I take it back at Hollywood park. I won't go into how much of the five figures, but it was a five figure win on a, about a $50 bet. Yeah. What, what was the IRS asking these questions or what's going on here? I know. Yeah, exactly. I trust me. I paid my IRS on that because out of, out of the five figures I got back, I got about 60% of it back. Yeah. That, that was your tax guy that was, uh, asking that yeah. question on asking anything. Exactly. Yes. Uh, what's the best new year's celebration you've ever been to skinny? We'll end it on this one. That's a good one. Um, I'm spending. I'll be celebrating New Year's this year, probably in a bar in Kansas City with a bunch of Bengals beat reporters because they obviously play the Chiefs. And by the time we get done writing, it'll be about ten thirty, eleven o'clock at night, and that's about the best we're gonna do. Um, that won't be terrible though. That'll actually no, be a be fun terrible. night. Yeah, it won't be terrible. No, we usually spend it with with another couple and their and 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 their family. We have a dinner, and then the kids would go out, and it would just kind of be the four of us hanging around and, and on New Year's Eve. I, I kind of like the quiet. I'm, I'm a, I, I was long past going out to crazy parties on New Year's when I was in my early 20s. At that point, it's like, yeah, you know, listen, I don't need New Year's Eve just to drink. As anybody who knows me knows, that's probably not the case. So, I mean, yeah, I, 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 would, I would say I don't really have one, to be honest with you. I don't. I'm going to go as far as to say as New Year's is by far the most overrated holiday. Great. Maybe even maybe, maybe even the worst because it's always like every it, there's this – idea that you have to be doing something on new year's eve like there's a party or whatever and it's like almost every there's nothing to do everything sucks worse on new year's eve it's like if you want to go out somewhere you pay a fee to get in and it's more crowded than usual and they're not like bars aren't normal they have like a you know crap on the tv and fancy drinks and stuff it's like you can't do anything the way you'd normally like to do it and it's all more expensive and more crowded i'm a didn't they the last few years haven't they had the college football playoff semifinal games on new year's eve instead of new year's day it seems like it. I know it because hasn't been on New Year's Day. Yeah, because yeah, the like last it. the last two years, I'm pretty sure, or at least two years ago for certain. Well, last year, last year we were celebrating New Year's 
watching the kid for Ohio State try to make the kick. Remember? Everybody That's was right. trying to flip back and forth. That was the key. That's right. So, yeah, I mean, I, I remember specifically we had gotten together with another couple to, to go over to their house and just watch the first game, leave right. maybe halftime of the second game and go back home. And it's like the perfect New Year's, uh, New Year's Eve night. But this year they moved it to New Year's Day, so I don't know what we're going to do. No, I'm with you on that. Yeah. All right, that's all I got, Skinny. All right, good stuff. Appreciate the questions as always. We will be back next week. Chris Rankle and I will be back this weekend with the Bengals recap podcast of the Bengals Chiefs game. Uh, for Rick Roy, I'm Richard Skinner. Have a happy new year, everyone. This has been the Skinny Podcast, presented by Blake, the attorney amazing.